0: Well, if you would open your Bibles back up to 2 Samuel. Uh, If you're new this morning, we started a new series last week on 2 Samuel. We're going to be preaching our way through the book, section by section. We call that expositional preaching, just trying to expose the text within its context. Now, last week, we just preached actually on verse 1, because it was an introductory sermon. And uh, I gave us a, a few rules for reading... 2 Samuel, this Old Testament narrative. How do we read it in a way uh, that it applies, in a sense, in a relevant way to our lives today? And uh, so I'm going to quickly give you those. It'd be great if you'd go back and listen to that sermon from last week if you missed it, uh, or watch it now that we have it up. But three rules for reading 2 Samuel. First of all, remember the big kingdom picture. 2 Samuel is about the Davidic kingdom. God setting up David as his king over his people. But it is a sits in the context of the kingdom of God throughout the whole Bible, God bringing in his kingdom in Jesus our ultimate king. And we always have to see it within that big picture. Look at we're looking at David's kingdom as we look back through the cross and the work of Christ. It's very important to set it in its big picture. Secondly, remember whose shoes you are in. As we study these stories, we always want to be in the hero's shoes. We want to be in David's shoes. But David is really a picture of Jesus, our ultimate king. We need to see ourselves most often in the shoes of the subjects of the king, the Israelites. Not that we can't learn from David's example. We do. But remember whose shoes you're in. You'll do better as you read this. And my last tip that I'm going to add this week for reading this book is read it big and fast. Read this book. Don't just read little bits of it like you're reading a, an epistle. Read this book in big sections like you're reading a novel. It flows. It has action. Sit down and read through a section. Read through a couple chapters. You'll see that today I'm going to preach from the whole of, of chapter 1. We'll be taking big sections like that through this book so that we can see it as it flows in the, in the narrative that it is. So a couple bit rules there. Remember the big kingdom picture? Remember whose shoes you're in? Read it big and fast. Now, I, I know that sometimes when we have a conversation, conversations about politics, you'll, you'll tend to hear people say something uh, kind of like, oh, man, you know, we can't ever seem to get a good leader because the, the political system we have just weeds out good leaders. It weeds out, man, of, of character and godliness. It, it seems to, to favor those with no scruples. The, the power game in Washington is so rigged and the polis, uh, politics are so dirty that if you have any real character or uh, integrity, you just can't get very far. At least that's how it It seems. It feels like those who are willing to do whatever it takes, even if that means compromising and cheating, they they tend ultimately to be the ones that get to the top. Nice guys finish last. Crime does pay in politics. And you know there's some truth in that. There's some truth in that throughout history, isn't there? It's nothing new. The ancient uh, kings, how did they come to power? Well, they came to power by killing the other guy, killing the other king. And the more violent and more unscrupulous and the more pragmatically ruthless they were, the more they were able to conquer their rivals. Not only did they take power by killing the other other king, they would kill all his men and kill all his family, especially any sons that might take that throne. They would bring out the sons, they'd bring out the mighty men, have them all killed, and then celebrate in the streets as they hung their body on the city gates that all should come and bow in fear. And, and it's, it's not that ancient of history. <laughs> Even in the more recent history, like, think of all the British kings. Have you ever read about what they did to each other? How they killed each other and killed their whole families? This is just very recent. In fact, one, uh, one king, I think it was Charles II, right? He had one of his rivals dug up and hung again and beheaded after, after he came to the throne. And we even see leaders today like Putin with their mafiasque ways that seem to demonstrate this truth. That's how it's done. That's how it's always been done. You do what it takes, you grab your power. To be a king, to be a powerful leader, you need to be a killer. And you know, it's this backdrop that makes this first chapter of 2 Samuel, this story about the rise of David to power and kingship, seem so outrageous. Because David's kind of inauguration or coronation as the new king here is is not only bloodless, no there's there's no merciless killing of his rivals and assassination of his family and there's no there's no celebration uh, and mocking uh, you know parade of his captors and a call for all to bow and homage not only is there none of that but it actually climaxes with what what does this passage end with this morning what is all Israel called to do as David becomes king lament they're called to lament David's first act of victory is to mourn the death of Saul his enemy and call all Judah to join him David is a king like no other king they've ever seen he is a king brought to the top by God himself We know from from 1 Samuel, he's a king after God's heart. Not that he's seeking God's heart, but literally modeled after God's heart. He's a king chosen out of God's heart, out of his character. And there are three things we learn about this new king's character in this kind of outrageous yet... Humble beginning to his reign, and we need to pay attention to them because remember, he is a king who's a shadow of our king to come in Christ, our greater king. And the first thing we need to note about him in this text is simply that he is a king of righteousness, that's what we see in verses 1 to 10 of our text. He is a king that put, first and foremost wants to do right before God. You see, as the scene opens in this text, David is waiting in the town of Ziklag, if you remember. He's just defeated the Amalekites and rescued back the women and children that they had kidnapped. If, if you read back a couple chapters, great reading, by the way, uh, of 1 Samuel right into this, David, Zik, the the uh, Phil, uh, excuse me, the Amalekites had conquered Ziklag and taken all the families, David's family and his men's families, hostage, kidnapped them, and David goes out with his warriors and his fighting men, and they conquer the Amalekites and save them. It's really heroic stuff. Bring them all back, and he comes back to Ziklag, but he hasn't heard the result of Saul's battle. A couple hundred miles north, Saul is battling the Philistines he's wondering what what's going to happen and he hasn't heard yet and then this man shows up this strange man shows up at his camp and he's all disheveled and there's dirt in his hair it says and his clothes are torn as if he's been in battle and he has big news he reports to David that Saul's army has been soundly defeated and not only that, but Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. And when David asks him for proof, how, how does he know this? This is his answer. Let's start it in verse 5. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happen to be on Mount Geboah. And there was Saul. "'Lean on his spear, and behold, the chariot and the horsemen were close upon him. "'And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered him, "'Here I am. And he said to me, "'Who are you?' I answered him, "'I am an Amalekite. "'And he said to me, "'Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, "'and yet my life still lingers.' So I stood beside him and killed him, "'because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen.' And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that, that was on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. Now, what's weird about this story? All you have to do is read back one chapter. He's lying, it's not true. As readers, we know this. If you've just read 1 Samuel chapter 31, the narrator tells you what happens in that battle. And Saul is killed. All three of his sons are killed. But Saul took his own life. He was wounded by archers. He asked his armor bearer to to take his life. Not this Amalekite. His armor bearer. His armor bearer wouldn't do it. So Saul took his own life, fell on his spear, and his armor bearer did the same. So why is this guy changing the story? Well, clearly, he sees opportunity, doesn't he? Opportunity to advance himself. His power, his prestige, his financial situation. I don't know, maybe all of it. Now, in one sense, we know he had to have been there and seen some of this. He was probably... One of the looters who came through that night after the battle, because the Philistines didn't come until the morning, we're told, to go through the bodies. Maybe he was going through the bodies, trying to find some, some good stuff, and he hits the jackpot. He comes upon Saul, the king. He has a crown, and he takes his armlet. Maybe he thinks, hey, I'll melt these down and make a lot of money. And then he thinks, no, i got a better plan. Right? He could go to David, the king. He could take these items to Saul's very rival, the soon-to-be king, and he could present himself as as the merciful hero. He put Saul out of his misery, because he was going to die anyway. And in doing that, he, he kind of unwittingly does the very deed that secures David's kingdom. And now he's come to pay homage to his new king. In verse 2, it says that he came and he fell down in homage before, Jesus, before David. And then in verse 10, he says, and I brought them to my Lord. He's kissing up. And it's all very believable. David doesn't know that he's lying. He has the, the armlet. He has the crown. He's dirty and, and disheveled in battle. And, and one of the believable parts about it is that he's an Amalekite. It, later, it tells us that he's a so, his father was a sojourner. In other words, he's like an alien resident, been living with Israel, but he's a Amalekite by descent. So it's believable that he would take Saul's life. David would know an Israelite would never do that, but an Amalekite would. So with David buying this hook, line, and sinker, what does he think is going to happen if David believes this story? well, he, he, he's probably expecting some handsome reward, a pretty good reward, something more valuable than this crown and, and, and armlet because he could have just sold those. Maybe some accolades, maybe some prestige. Maybe he'll be a hero, the guy who finally took out Saul. Perhaps be put in a trusted position in David's kingdom. And why does he think this will happen? because he thinks David is like every other king. He assumes that David is like the other kings, that he's driven by his own self-promotion, that he acts out of expedience and ruthless practicality, that he would reward anyone who could get the job done for him, no matter the means. But he finds out very soon that he has made a grave mistake of judgment. As David tears his clothes and falls to the ground and says in verse 14, David said to him, How is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? This Malachite had not figured in to his equation righteousness, David's righteousness, that David is a man after God's heart, that he's not pursuing his own kingdom, he's pursuing God's. If you remember in the book of 1 Samuel, David had had many opportunities to kill Saul himself, hadn't he? Remember when he, uh, in, in chapter 24, if you want to even flip back, chapter 24, when Saul, uh, David and his men are hiding in a cave from Saul because they're being hunted by Saul and his men. And Saul just happens to pick that cave to go in to relieve himself. So they've got Saul. They could kill him right there. And then chapter 24, verse 4, it says this, And the men of David said to, said to him, said to David, Here is the day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and steadily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards David's heart struck him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. The Lord's anointed to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. Same thing happened in chapter 26 when David and Abishai snuck into his camp and there was Saul sleeping so close that they could steal his spear and Abishai begged David, let me pin him to the ground. I'll do it in one hit with his spear. David said, no, he's the Lord's anointed. David knew not to touch the Lord's anointed. He understood that only God, if God had anointed him as king, only God could undo that and take it away. So despite the fact that Saul had been trying to kill him. In fact, how many times did Saul attempt David's luck to kill David? Do you know? Eleven times. Despite the fact that Saul had been hunting him like a dog for years so that he was hiding in caves and having to even hide out with the Philistines, he would not step against God's plan. He would trust God's sovereignty and act rightly, even at great cost to himself, right? He was not about his will, but the Father's, even if it meant terrible suffering in his life. He would trust God. Now, who does that remind you of? Maybe the ultimate king of righteousness? Who would say, as he suffered in the garden, not my will, Father, but yours, as he headed to the cross? He would trust God's plan despite the suffering it meant for his life. You see, we serve the ultimate righteous king who has established a kingdom of righteousness at great cost. And he calls us to seek first his kingdom, his righteousness. It's Matthew six thirty-three, and he will judge the whole world in righteousness. That's Acts seventeen thirty-one. And we need to learn from this Amalekite's mistake. We can't pursue a righteous king through unrighteous means. We can't bring the world's ruthless expedience into his service. John Woodhouse, in his wonderful commentary, puts it this way. He says, The Amalekite had imagined that he could profit from his lie in the new kingdom of David. He fancied that he could have David as his king while remaining an Amalekite at heart. He dreamed that he could seek David's kingdom without pursuing His righteousness. And it was a deadly mistake. We need to examine ourselves. Although we claim to be part of God's kingdom as Christians, are we making compromises to get ahead? Are we sometimes just doing what it takes? Because it's easy. It's practical, because it's very short-sighted. I mean, what do our actions say to people? Do they speak of of worldly expedience and and, and practicality, especially if if it means there's hardship, we're just gonna do what works? Do we lie and cheat and twist the truth as it serves us, maybe even in ways that the world would say is, is no big deal? Or do our actions speak of trusting in God, even in long suffering? I remember a friend of mine in Australia lost his job because at work the whole thing was set up to cheat on the taxes from the government and he wouldn't take part in it. It would have been so easy. Just do what everybody does. Our king is righteous. And he died to give us his righteousness. Let us live in it that we may flourish in his kingdom. And this will seem weird and foolish and impractical in our world to those around us. But that's what we're called to. Now, as this scene progresses... We see that this new king is not only unusual in that he's a king of righteousness, but he's also unusual in that he is a king of sorrow. We see this powerfully displayed as David, upon hearing of Saul and Jonathan's death, not only tears his clothes and falls to the ground, but he actually begins this 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 psalm of lament. And as a reader, when you read it, it almost seems like too much. I mean, come on, for Saul? No one would blame David if he just kind of shrugged his shoulders when he heard the news and shook his head and said, well, Saul finally got what was coming. I've been waiting for God to bring his just judgment. I've been praying for it. It's finally happened. Yeah, it's kind of sad, but but now I can get on with the real work of his kingdom. Praise God. He doesn't, he mourns, he weeps, and he calls all of Judah to do the same. Have you noticed that in verse 17 and 18 as he begins the psalm? He, he, he said this should be taught to the people of Judah, right? It was written down in the book of Jashar. We don't have it. Luckily, they wrote it down here as well. Why? Because he understands the true loss of death. The tragedy of death as it stills the potential of that life. David mourns what could have been. Death isn't good when when bad people die and, and bad when good people die. It's always a massive loss of what could have been. The good and the right and the beautiful that could have been. Look at verse 19. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. publish it not in the streets of uh, Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you. Nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled. And the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. Saul's shield, he pictures it left in the battlefield, defiled and dirty, not anointed with oil. See, they used to, before battle, they had these leather shields with different pieces of armor on them, and they would oil them so that they would be slick that so the blows would glance off and their enemies wouldn't be able to grab a hold of them. And he pictures it now lying in the mud, defiled, and the oil is kind of worn off and gone. It's symbolic of his unanointing as God's king. The shield is no longer anointed with oil. The glory of what once was and what could have been has been lost forever. God had promised Saul that if he had been obedient, his kingdom would have been established forever. And for a time, there was so much promise. He and Jonathan were were great warriors together for God, fighting the enemies of his people victoriously. That's what verse 22 is about. But the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. And they had this undivided union with each other as father and son that was lovely and beautiful. That's verse 23. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely. And they brought much prosperity to God's people. That's verse 24. You daughters of Israel, weep for Saul who clothes you in luxurious scarlet and put ornaments of gold on your apparel. Things could have been so great but it's all gone. All that could have been. And this has been the nature of death from the start, isn't it? Adam and Eve in the garden, in sinless perfection, with everything good and right, that garden kingdom poised to grow and blossom into its full potential. Think of what could have been But they sinned, they were separated from God, and death ensued, and it was all lost. And the loss of death, the sting has been plaguing us ever since. We all know it, we all feel it, it's why we weep at funerals. So David weeps, and he calls Israel to lament. And and, and again, in this... He points us forward to our King, the forever King, Jesus, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. You see, after Saul, and after David, and after Solomon have all failed and been swallowed up in death themselves, the prophets, like Isaiah, would point forward to a greater king who would come, who would not only lament death, think of Jesus standing at Lazarus' tombs, gutted in pain and grieved over his death. Think of him standing before Jerusalem, mourning over her downfall. He would not only lament death, but he would take it on. He would take it upon himself, all the sorrow, all the grief and pain and loss that we have earned in our sin. And he would bear it all for us on the cross and conquer death once and for all. Think of him standing as we saw at Easter before the disciples on Resurrection Sunday. Arms extending, proclaiming peace. Having conquered death. Oh, where is it sting? Christians, kingdom people, we should lament death. We should hate it and weep over the loss it brings. We should engage with the sorrow of this broken world because of death. We can and should be real about how much it hurts and is wrong, and we should acknowledge the potential that it robs from us the good that it takes, the relationships that it breaks, all that could have been. And again, this is not normal. Our society doesn't want to engage with death this way. It wants to sanitize it behind hospital walls and decorative boxes. It wants to ignore it with entertainment and distractions wants to numb, we want to numb ourselves to its sorrows with medications and lies. We should engage with it fully. And this should drive us to cling to and proclaim the good news that our king of sorrows has defeated it and offers life. We can move from lament and loss to life and hope because of our king. And this brings me to the final characteristic of this new king that we see in this scene, and that is grace. He's a king of righteousness, he's a king of sorrow, and he is a king of grace. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this point because we're going to see this displayed in abundance as we go through this book. But what we can't miss as we read through this psalm of lament is how the whole thing is permeated with grace. David isn't just upset over the loss of death. He weeps specifically for Saul and he remembers him. And as he remembers him, he speaks only good about him. He has not one bad thing to say, one criticism, one harsh word about a man who tried to spear him to a wall, about a man who had priests and women and children killed because they aided him, about a man who brought devastation upon God's people. He chooses to remember none of that, and he speaks only of the good, of Saul's courage, of Saul's strength of his generous prosperity. In fact, did you notice that he pairs Saul with Jonathan? Jonathan, his best friend and companion, he he pairs Saul with him. He speaks of him in in the same breath. Verse 23 or 24, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely in life and death, they were not divided. He sees them, he looks at them through the same gracious eyes. It's almost too much. It seems wrong. You've heard the story about going to somebody's funeral, right? And and you're listening along and everybody starts sharing all these great stories about the person. And then finally you think, man, I need to go peek in the coffin and see if this is that guy I knew. It, 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 It doesn't seem right. It almost seems unjust. We want to say, that's not fair. Get real, David. This guy tried to kill you, he was your enemy, he was ruthless. But that's the point. It isn't just, it's not fairness, it's grace. It's unmerited favor towards Saul. This is a king who actually has a gracious love even for his enemy. Even for the one who has caused him much suffering and turned on him. Again, we should see the shadow. But God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, enemies who turned on him, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by his death. You see, the king of God's people, the one chosen by God to rule over his people, the one that reflects God's heart, will be a, a righteous king. He will trust God and serve him no matter what the cost is to his life. He will be a king of sorrow who laments the loss of death intimately and hates it and is grieved. And he will be a king of grace who loves even his enemy. Seeking only his good. It's an amazing king. And the question is, how does one respond to such a king? How how does one respond to, to be part of this king's kingdom? What is it to live with him as your king? Well, the Amalekite at the beginning of this text clearly got it wrong. It's not about an unrighteous allegiance that that earns favor by saying, look what I've done for you. Look how I've advanced your kingdom, no matter the means. Reward me now. You kind of owe me. That's the Amalekite's approach. Not a good one with this king. I think it's more about the man we see at the end of this text. Look at how this lament ends in uh, verse 25. Let's start there, the end of it. Jonathan lies slain on the high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary. Surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen. Every scholar points out how this song of lament strangely, in a sense, ends emphasizing Jonathan. It doesn't emphasize Saul. It doesn't emphasize Saul's other two sons. If you read back, Jonathan and the other two sons were killed in the battle. It's all about Jonathan. The psalm, the, the, the lament is almost complete in verse 25. The first verse is repeated and it's complete, how the mighty have fallen. And then it comes back to Jonathan so that we don't miss it. And note how the end of 25, which says this, Jonathan lies slain on, the, on your high places. What is that parallel? That parallels the very first verse, verse 19. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. The glory of Israel is Jonathan. Why? Why is Jonathan the glory of Israel? Because of how he responded to David. Because of how he loved his king. I'm aware that this verse, and you may have heard this, has been a verse that's used as some kind of evidence for some homosexual attraction between David and Jonathan. But that's not what this is about at all. Not only does the Hebrew language not go there at all, but if you read about their relationship in 2 Samuel, in 1 Samuel, excuse me, Jonathan, you know, he was, he was to be the king after Saul, but he understood that David was anointed by God. And he submitted himself to David. He said that David would be his king. He gave up his personal power His right to the throne. And he bowed the knee to David in complete trust and commitment. And he would be loyal to him through all things and rejoice in their brotherhood. And he covenanted this to him. He promised this to David. That's the kind of love that's being talked about. It was a love of deeper commitment and deeper covenant than any other love in his life. Deeper than family even deeper than the love between, uh, of a woman, the love of his wife. That seems so weird in our culture. But my friends, that is the heart of what it is to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to love our King Jesus in a more deeply committed way than any other love in our life more than our families, more than our spouses. That's what it is. He is our king of righteousness and sorrow and our king of grace. And he deserves all our joyous love, the commitment of our life. We see this from the very start of this book. David is showing us Jesus and what it is to know him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you don't just give us your truth and propositions, that you give it to us in lives. You show us in real life examples of people living out what it is to be part of your kingdom, under your king. Lord, I pray that we would learn, that we would grow, that we would be rebuked and corrected and exhorted to love you all the more. We pray that we would have a love like Jonathan for our king, your son Jesus. Amen.